Thank you for listening to the Plain State Podcast by the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Chigozier Obioma's most recent novel, An Orchestra of Minorities, was recently shortlisted for the prestigious Man Booker Prize. For this episode, he sits down with Guy Reynolds to have a conversation about the book, his writing, and his experiences that inform his work. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Guy Reynolds. I'm a professor of English here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Hi, uh, I'm Chigozi Obioma, assistant professor of English and creative writing at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, let's start off by talking about Chigozier's earliest memories of uh, storytelling and fiction making, the things that perhaps formed him uh, as a novelist to come. So in my earliest uh, memory, I uh, fell in love with uh, fiction, not just fiction, but stories, uh, the abstract world, very early life. Uh, that came about first when uh, I used to play a lot of soccer. And then, you know, one, one of those days I uh, ended up in the hospital and then my parents were telling me stories. And, you know, they would ask me to close my eyes and then simulate these, uh, you know, otherworldly spaces that were coming mm. up in their stories. And I, it became a favorite uh, pastime of mine. Mm. And, and then, you know, the, the, the moment I knew how to read, I began to read voraciously. And the more I read, the more I ached and longed, uh, you know, passionately uh, for the time when I would be able to write my own, uh, create my own stories. So I, I wrote my first book uh, when I was about 12 years old. I was just starting uh, primary, uh, secondary school then, the, the British system. Um, I think that would be grade, uh, grade one in the American system, maybe grade five or, or thereabout. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was, it was called the Dwarf King. I still remember <laughs> the story very well. So, th so that, that was really how, uh, I, I mean, I would say that I've been writing since I was a, a child, really. Mm. And what, what were the first stories that you were listening to and hearing about? What, what was your early experience of literature? Yeah, so those stories were mostly, uh, as I would discover later on, uh, gotten from books. So mm. there were two people who told me stories mostly, my mom and my dad. So my mom uh, was semi-literate, so she didn't uh, so she told mostly stories that mm. she had heard from people, you know, in the village where she grew up. So they were mostly animal stories, things about, you know, man and nature and some of the didactic stories, you know, with totties and hair and all that. Uh, but my dad told stories more about uh, human beings. And I, I, I noticed that distinction uh, quite early on and I couldn't really uh, tell why. You know, their stories were different. It was uh, probably when I was like eight or nine when I discovered one day uh, when I asked my dad to tell me a story. And he just pulled out a book and said, you know, read it. You can now read for yourself. And I discovered it was like, you know, this big epiphany for mm. me that, wow, so this man had been reading these books. And this was the source of, of these stories that he was telling me. So... Uh, so, so, so they were varied. Uh, his stories, some of them, uh, in fact, one of those stories was, uh, I would discover later, Shylock, you know, mm. Shakespearean mm. Uh, story about this guy who was like a very uh, mean moneylender, you know, and he was very uh, 
Arsenal, you know, he 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 was very merciless for those towards those who owed him, and he he was ruthless really. So and you know that that character stayed in my mind mm. for a long time. Mm. Mm. And then eventually, um, you went on a global journey across um, two or three different countries after Nigeria, and ended up here in the United States. Um, during that period, you began and wrote a novel called The Fisherman, which has been tremendously successful. So tell us a little bit about how you began um, to become a novelist and what the early stages of your career were really about. So, uh, as I said, I, I, you know, I began writing, uh, I called them stories, because most of them, they were just a, you know, a gallimaufry of things. There were sometimes when I combined you know, the animal stories together, you know, in this uh, patchwork of, <laughs> of whatever you want to call it, you know, but I became more deliberate uh, when uh, I think it was when I got into secondary school, I began mm. to read uh, more like higher literature, so to say. So, uh, and I started also to take lit literature courses. Uh, so I read uh, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, over a three-month period uh, at, at about that age of 12. Mm -hmm. I think that was when I wrote, sat down and actually wrote my, my book. <laughs> so, um, so it's been progressively, you know, uh, me just mostly writing novels, less short stories, but at some at some point, I think in my teenage years, I wrote uh, some plays as well. So like stage dramas, uh, which was actually, uh, you know, some of them were acted on stage for like the school. Uh, but then I wrote my first novel, uh, which was like a young adult fiction around the age of 16, 17. And and then the principal of my uh, you know secondary school, he was a British man, uh, uh, no an Irish priest, kind of British, and so he loved it. I showed it to him, and he he tried to get it published, but I didn't know what publishing was at the time. Uh, I didn't know that we were dabbling into kind of self-publishing. Mm -hmm. So so he raised money, my dad raised money, and they combined and paid this firm, which is now defunct. They closed a long time ago. So that book is somewhere. <laughs> I've seen people bring it to me, you know, to sign it. I'm like, please, you know, why are they still, why is this still available on Amazon, you know? Uh, so that, that was like the first experience. Uh, then I went to Cyprus, as you, as you noted earlier, uh, at 21. And the moment I got there, I began working on the fishermen because mm -hmm. I, you know, I had been removed from Nigeria to this very far-flung mm. uh, place on the other side of the world. And, uh, you know, this I began to experience this very uh, palpable feeling of nostalgia. And that was what evoked in me a kind of an awakening. And, you know, uh, the, and, and then, of course, bore the gem of the story you know, of brotherhood and siblinghood and, and family, actually. So uh, so I wrote the book. I began working on it around 2009, I think. And uh, I published it. I mean, I, I was with it throughout my stay in Cyprus. 
and I used excerpts of it here and there to get admission mm. to come to the U.S. And but by the time I came here in 2012 <clears throat> to the University of Michigan, uh, I had a complete manuscript. Mm. So uh, I sold the book while in, I was like in my first year of, of my MFA program there. And uh, so by the time I graduated in 2015, it was published. And now I have a second book, uh, An Orchestra of Minorities. So we talked a little bit about um, your journey to Cyprus and your first novel. Um, that novel, Your Life, um, and then the second novel, An Orchestra of Minorities, all touch on, in one way or another, themes connected to migration. So I was wondering whether you could talk to us a little bit about um, how you have developed an interest in storytelling that is about movement and migration. And perhaps also thinking about the fact that, as you said, one of the first books that you got to know was Homer's Odyssey. Yeah. Well, I have come to conceptualize uh, my, if I would say, the overarching theme of my work as more of like, not just the physical movement, uh, you know, be, between places, but more of like, a, you know, a kind of the movement of consciousness, mm. everything, the total sum of, of an individual, their culture, their, uh, you know, history and everything, the way in which we, we move through time. So you, you see in The Fisherman, <clears throat> there's a kind of journey that begins the moment uh, the family unit is fractured. Uh, the movement in some way into youth, into the unknown, you know, by, by the uh, mm. main character who is nine at the at the point of the major conflict in the novel. And uh, in an orchestra of minorities, it's, it's, it's much more concrete, that movement. This, mm. this guy uh, who sells everything he has to be able to journey to this faraway country uh, not knowing for sure uh, where what he will encounter there. <clears throat> so for me, I feel like one of the most uh, interesting dynamics of our modern uh, day mm. uh, existence is that we move. And, uh, you know, th there is a kind of... It's, it's both a pleasurable experience when it's going well, obviously, but also even when it's going well, there is something uh, very, something very, should I, I don't want to use the, the word tragic because it's, mm. it, it, would, it would feel almost cliche at this point, but, but there, there's a sense, there's a deep centered sadness to that. Because where you are formed, where mm. you grow up, is really where your anchor is. Mm. You are forever tied consciously and spiritually to that place. But then you uproot yourself and replant yourself in, in you know, in this space. <laughs> so for me, uh, I I've used an orchestra of minorities to kind of draw a a, a more well realized portrait of how disastrous that can you know be. Mm. Uh, and, and uh, the story of an orchestra of minorities, I have to say, was inspired by an actual experience. 
uh, even though, of course, I've made it into fiction. And fiction is mostly you, you know, exaggerating what might seem like mm-hmm. uh, some some lived experience. <laughs> so it was uh, inspired by an actual guy who made that kind of journey, uh, a kind of tragic odyssey. So he leaves Nigeria without knowing that, you know, he had been, you know, defrauded and deceived and get into Cyprus and discovering, uh, you know, having this uh, awakening, he is crushed by it. So the same fate happens to uh, Chinon, so the main character of an orchestra of minorities. But I let him return to Nigeria because I'm also interested in the in in a different kind of journey, mm. which is mostly the uh, the emotional motility of characters. So how do we move from one state to the other? So what can cause, for instance, uh, a brother who loves his uh, younger siblings very deeply, you know, and uh, would would have killed for them to turn back, you know, to the direct opposite and hate them. You know, what uh, I'm, I'm very interested in how you know a character moves from that one point to the other end of the mm. spectrum uh here as well uh you know the the novel begins with this almost self sacrificial guy who not only risk if you know anything about nigeria stopping in the middle of the highway is a dangerous thing you know there could be hoodlums hiding in the bush somewhere so he risks his life and then he throws away you know, uh, these files that are precious to him, uh, you know, and, and he, you know, to, to try to save this woman, he doesn't know. But by novel's end, he has become a very different person. He's been so completely changed that, you know, he's uh, almost, uh, you know, he's filled with this passion, you know, this revenge mm-hmm. to, 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 to get back at the world uh, that has uh, turned him this way. Hmm. An Orchestra of Minorities is a, a big and complex novel. Um, it's an epic of sorts. Um, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the processes of composition, of how you put together this large, <laughs> long, involving, epic narrative. Well, it, it was it was a, a kind of complicated process, uh, but it, it's uh, you know I look at my uh, my daughter now she's about fourteen months and I'm like she's always trying to create obstacle courses for herself yeah so that she would do something difficult so I'm kind of like that I say to myself well I have this simple story uh, you know and I begin from a, a, a you know an almost archetypal place you know. Okay, well, uh, a guy who falls in love and then it goes awry and then he tries to recover. Or, you know, brothers who whose lives are, who hear prophecy and, and their life tumbled. Uh, but then it becomes this, you know, more complex structure. Simply because I always, by the time I write the first draft, I think to myself, you know, uh, I want to tell a story in every story in a in a different way mm. i want to i want to see if i can capture uh if if i can create something that would uh 
feel fresh. I, I mean, I, I think it's almost impossible to have something original at this point. Uh, so, so then I put myself on that course. Okay, let me see how this pans out. Uh, at the end of the day, once I am back on that journey, I find like, well, if I, uh, if I stay the course, Hmm. No matter how difficult it might be, I might get something that you know I want to have. So, so, so that that's how I I take off. So, but it did start with just like a more traditional uh, kind of uh, piece, and then it be, it morphed into this uh, complex structure. Mm. So one of the things that people are going to find when they when they read the book, and I'm opening a, a copy of it here, is a kind of map of the cosmology of the of, of uh, the Igbo people, which relates particularly to the chi or guardian spirit. And I was wondering if you could um, talk to us about the chi, how you use the chi, what the chi might be, and and how readers who are unfamiliar with this particular cosmology um, might begin to understand what you're doing here. Okay, so uh, the the chi uh, in I first became interested in the chi obviously because my name <laughs> the chi prefix is my name so mm. chi gozier and uh, many names uh, in 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 the Bo tradition chinoa chimamanda you know all these names mm. and uh, but my but there's a phenomenon in Nigeria uh, which began. Uh, once the Africans encountered, uh, you know, the British, not just the British, but the Portuguese first. So most uh, West Africans became Christians or Muslim, mm. depending on what part of, of the continent you are. So uh, in the southeast of Nigeria, where the Igbo people are located, uh, most of them converted to Christianity. Only a handful refused, and, and my my maternal grandfather was one of those, you know, uh, very obstinate ones who uh, continued uh, to be devoted to the ancestral religion called Odinani. So my mom grew up in that kind of household and she was deeply rooted in, 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 in that culture and all of that. So she would always say, make statements like, you know, if something bad happened uh, growing up, she would say, okay, we can ascribe so-and-so, you know, event to the fact that this person's chi is weak or, or, or sleepy or something like that. So I, I became very curious about the phenomenon of the chi. And so once I, I conceived of the idea of uh, having, uh, you know, the structure of this novel, be through this narrator who uh, ensouls this character and is a reincarnating spirit who's been coming and going out of the world for uh, you know some 600 years uh, i did more research and i discovered that the cheese the, the the belief in the chi was at the very heart of the Igbo, uh worldview in pre-colonial times so it, it was the equivalent should i say of I don't know, should I, maybe free speech, what is at the very heart, you know, something that is realized in institution in the Judeo-Christian or Western uh, system. So you could trace 
for instance, Western democracy to free will, for mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. You know, so that idea. Uh, so the, the belief in the Chi was that uh, it was responsible for the egalitarian structure of the political system uh, in pre-colonial times. <laughs> so it is this big thing. And, and so I thought, okay, uh, I want to also tell the story in a way that I want to investigate why a person, not just how, how a person transforms, uh, is transformed by uh, unfortunate events, but also what is fate and what is preordained and how, how is it that our life turn out in, in these different ways. Mm. So in some ways, I wanted to investigate the metaphysics of, of being uh, and, and of existence, you know. So I, I saw the chi as the platform to be able to do that. So having, you know, acquired this very high, higher knowledge of mankind and of the world because it has existed several, you know, for, for so long and has en- embodied so many different people. So uh, so in, in a way, I, I wanted to have that uh, very wise and knowing, uh, you know, narrator. And also, technically speaking, I wanted to push the boundaries of point of view. So the the G telling this story to this jury, uh, you know, in metaphysical space uh, is at once uh, telling a story about itself and its own history and journey, mm-hmm. while also telling the story of Chinon, so the the main character so it is a first person narrator as well as a third person narrator at the same time mm. so uh, in fact there are points where you could make the argument that it even begins to speak as as a second person narrator so i wanted to blur those lines uh, also uh, and at the same time lastly i wanted to also draw a kind of map of this uh, you know civilization these these people you know, their history. Mm. So they are like, you know, the Chi was uh, around when slavery happened, when the first encounter with the Portuguese and then the British, uh, the Biafran War, all of the major events in Igbo history, uh, you know, they come together in this one being. So in some ways, uh, (laughs) I think if there's any ambition in this project, is that I wanted to tell a very uh, specific story of a, of a character, but also draw a map uh, of an entire civilization and its history. So this is the way that the novel becomes a post-colonial text, perhaps. Yes, in a way, obviously, yes, because it has, you know, the, 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 the chi is, is trying to pay fidelity to truth. Mm. Or what it thinks is truth, uh, you know, uh, is a concept of truth. So it's, it 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 doesn't idealize anything. <laughs> there is a uh, a kind of a testimony of of everything it has witnessed, uh, how the colonialism ho- happened, how did the Africans, you know, uh, forgo their own culture and and religion and all of these. And embrace that of these, uh, you know, foreigners. Why? So the chi tries to tell all of these stories while giving, uh, you know, this story of this particular character. It's a pretty harrowing book in places. Um, 
Could you talk a little bit about that without giving away any yeah. plot spoilers? I mean, I was thinking particularly of using that word tragic, which I think you used earlier on. Do you yeah. think it's a, a, a tragic n- narrative? Well, I, I think so. I mm. mean, if we want to be honest, it does turn very dark. Uh, you know, I don't know why my two novels have been, why they they tend to go into those dark places. I mean, I think the obvious uh, answer for this one could be the story that inspired it. You know, this guy dies mm. in this very tragic way. Uh, so the guy I met in Cyprus, I think I mentioned it earlier, he came and then discovers that he has been duped and, you know, he drinks and falls to his death. So that's a tragic story in itself. Mm. Uh, but but it's not, I, I would say, you know, Chinonzo doesn't die. The main character in this book is alive throughout, even though he inflicts some damage on other characters. Uh, but, you know, he he goes through quite a bit of hardship. He's incarcerated at some point, uh, you know, and the carceral state is one of, you know, the reasons why he becomes what he becomes later on. So I, I think that when you try to explore this kind of deep questions of humanity, uh, you know, about fate, about destiny, stories tend to turn dark, you know, in their complexion. So your first novel was adapted into a play. Um, could you tell us about this adaptation? And um, are there plans for similar adaptations, perhaps, of orchestra of minorities? So The Fisherman has been, uh, was adapted uh, into a, a stage play, and uh, it just actually finished playing in, it went back to the Edinburgh Fringe mm. as, as, you know, one of ten selections by the edinburgh fringe so it's it's been it's been very successful and i have to say that i had nothing to do with that adaptation uh you know someone read the book a producer and just wrote to us out of the blues and i had this very interesting idea of like you know distilling the the whole story into a two handler yeah where uh two characters are on stage instead of two brothers instead of four brothers Mm. and their two parents. So, uh, you know, so the two characters fluidly play all the roles, you know, so one character morphs within like seconds from being the mother to one of the brothers. And when he first brought the idea, I was like, I mean, this guy must be crazy. How are you going to do that? Mm. But then I was like, well, I'll just let them do it. I mean, it's not going to cost me anything, it will, you know, whether it fails or not. Uh, so it will only bring more attention to the book. And so I'm very grateful for how that has gone. Uh, it's going back to the London West End uh, from September 3rd. So Trafalgar Studios. Uh, sadly, we've not been able to bring it to West, uh, sorry, to North America uh, because of the cost, but there has been a, a very successful production in South Africa, which just ended uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, so the uh, an orchestra of minorities is about to be made into a TV series. Yes. Wow! So we 
we just spoke with uh you know i'm not going to to mention the name of the producer but it's a very well-known person who surprisingly loved the book uh but they are affiliated with abc you know abc wow. studio wow. so i mean it's not completely set in stone yet but looks like it will be so uh, that is very exciting. There's nothing about stage yet for, for it. I think it will be a very challenging book to stage. But as a TV series, yes, I can see. I can yeah. totally see that. Yeah. Okay. And then one final question, Chigozier. We know that you're a football fan and you've even talked with me about the fact that you could have become a professional soccer yes. player. Which I still regret. Which you still regret. So what... So. Um, what are the similarities between writing fiction and playing soccer? So I'm, for me uh, particularly, I can be. If, you, if you if you've seen, I, I mean, you've read my work. I'm kind of a maximalist. So I'm, I'm living. I'm existing in an age where minimalism, especially in the American tradition. So in the seventies, you had Raymond Carver and the rest coming and. You know, they kind of uh, Hemingway, they, they, they created an aesthetics of American prose writing that so many of our contemporaries have stuck to. So, but I like, you know, more of like a full, elevated, on, ornate, sometimes mm -hmm. even uh, over, should I say, exuberant prose style. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the... Uh, more like baroque style so that that's the, the kind of writing that i indulge in and you know i feel like what drew me to soccer to, to football uh, was dribbling you know <laughs> i watched maradona at the, at the you know growing up and romario and some mm. of these legends and the way in which they confuse and completely discombobulate their opponents was like very you know intriguing for me so I do that a lot. So I, I, you know, I've always been a mid midfielder, and I, I dribble very well. Uh, you know, I mean, I've not played football in probably a year now, so I don't know if those skills are still there. But yeah, uh, I, you know, I, I had the chance to play professionally, but I felt like I was afraid that I would never be able to write to come into writing, and that scared me. And, uh, you know, I, I, but if, if I had done that, I probably, who knows, I may not have succeeded, but if I did, obviously I would be 20 times richer than this poor me <laughs> of today. Shigosio Obiyama, thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, Guy. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Special thanks to Chigozier Obioma, Assistant Professor of English, and to Professor Guy Reynolds, Chair of the Undergraduate Program and Curriculum Committee in the Department of English. Plain State is produced by Robert Lipscomb. Music by Shadows on a River. I'm Katie Schmidt-Henson. On behalf of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska, thank you for listening to the Plain State Podcast. Tagline forthcoming.